0: so if you would find two passages of scripture psalm 23 verse 1 and luke 15 verse 1 psalm 23 and luke 15. while exercising lately i've been watching a vlogger named peter santanello now if you don't know a vlogger someone who tells or captures a story via video i see cup, i see one of you shaking your head anyone else have watched any of his stuff okay just curious He travels the country getting an on the ground story from people firsthand, people on the front lines. He covers stories the legacy media won't. he? He leaves his opinion out, and they're absolutely fascinating. I watched one about the horrible increase in human trafficking and prostitution in Las Vegas. It's exploded in the last two to three years. So he interviews a woman who goes out on the Vegas Strip to rescue these trafficked women, and it's dangerous. If she finds one and they're willing, she funnels them to a secluded, faith-based home she started to rescue these women, and they spend four years there being healed. This woman herself was trafficked for 20 years. She was beaten, abused brutally, things I can't say from a pulpit. But as they walk down the Vegas Strip, she points out, Trafficked women on the street, but she says their handlers are watching from a distance So we can't approach those women because she knows they'll be beaten and abused for talking to her Now in the middle of this walk down the strip, she suddenly breaks down. It's so sad I'm gonna tell you what she said and I may cry telling you this myself her real name is Annie, but her trafficked name was Phelan And in what I'm going to tell you, she's speaking about her traffickers. And I'm quoting from the transcript. She said, men did not love me. I never got what I, I'm going to cry right now, Peter. They never loved the real person. They never loved the real person that I was inside. I just wanted to be loved by them. I wanted them to see me for who I really was. I didn't want them to think of me as a call girl. I wanted to be Annie. I didn't want to be Phelan anymore. I wanted them to love me as a real human being, my soul. And I couldn't get that, and I was so devastated. That's why I started doing cocaine, and I have to end it there. I think, I'm I'm pretty sure. I think you would find that many people who, while never trafficked, would say something similar about their lives right now. Some of you would say, I feel so unloved, or I'm so lonely. Now, others of you, and I know this is true, others of you would say, I feel like I never measure up to other people. And that creates all sorts of conflict in your life. Others would identify with her because you would say, I feel overwhelmed. I'm insecure, I'm fearful, or I'm always anxious about the future. So as we continue in this series, Caring for Your Soul, I want us to look at these verses, and I want you to see this morning that you have a God who is, n- he is not indifferent to you. You have a good shepherd who cares for your soul. And nothing is more important than your soul. That's why each week we're repeating eight statements. You have a soul it is uniquely you it was created by God it's your most important possession it will exist forever either in a place called heaven or a place called hell therefore it is of the utmost value so let's read the first verse of this famous psalm and then read the verses in Luke 15 as we learn how the good shepherd cares for your soul Luke chapter 20, excuse me, Psalm 23, verse 1. Familiar? You probably all know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Luke 15 says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man eats with sinners, excuse me, receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you... If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When it comes to the good shepherd caring for your soul, here's truth number one. We are sheep. Now, much of the Bible's teaching is in a rural context. Jesus connected with people, not with high-sounding language. He used everyday Uh, words and he used examples of agrarian life which most of them lived one of his most often used examples was that of shepherding and in John chapter 10 he made it clear that he is the good shepherd and we are sheep I'm an under-shepherd Nathan is an under-shepherd so is Kirk but we're still sheep and that is the image the Bible often uses for God's people the problem is it's an unflattering image One writer noted that some countries have, or many countries have national symbols of animals that are tough or cool. You know, Russia is the bear. He said, America is the bald bald eagle that will fly over and drop a bomb. (laughs) England is a giant lion. But God says of we, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have victory over sin, he calls us sheep. Now, some of you raise sheep, so I'm willing to stand corrected on what I'm going to say. All I know is what I've read but I don't think sheep can be trained. I mean, they're not like dogs. They're not as smart as dogs. They can't find safe pasture by themselves. They can't even find clean water without help. I read that when they finish eating a patch of grass and there's none left, they just don't have the sense to know what to do next. Plus, they have no defensive weapons, no claws, can't run, no way to fight back, so they're often afraid, easily disturbed, And they're good at wandering into places where they can get hurt. Three of the biggest problems sheep have are this. Number one, they're self-willed. They do what they want to do. And that never ends well. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So sheep are self-willed. And number two, is a cousin to that, sheep will go where they shouldn't go. They're fearful and timid, yet they will wander off. And end up in situations where they cannot extract themselves from and then thirdly maybe worst of all sheep are peer influenced sheep will follow other sheep and the reason that they follow other sheep is because that's where the other sheep are going everyone else is going that way that must be the way to go so the sad truth is sheep describes us well and isaiah said of sheep All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So we are sheep. Number two, he is a shepherd. And I want you to notice four important character traits of this shepherd. First, notice in Psalm 23 the identity of the shepherd. Verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, capital letters in your Bible. That's the name Yahweh. We call it Y-A-H-W-A-H, but the Jews just called it Y-H-W-H. They didn't want to pronounce the name of God because it was so holy. It's the name for God that expresses His eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence. It's also the personal name of God. It was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. But from there, it's repeated in the Old Testament more than 4,000 times. The name Yahweh also refers to God's self-sufficiency. God needs nothing. He has all wisdom, all power. He doesn't need to be worshipped, assisted, or advised. He doesn't need us at all. So verse 1 is an astonishing statement because it reveals not only the identity of the shepherd, it tells us of the love of the shepherd. This high and holy Yahweh... Is our shepherd. Excuse me. We're going to take care of that and get it done, I hope. We are dumb old sheep, but Yahweh still shepherds us. Now, this is a Davidic Psalm written about a thousand A.D. And in that day, as in all Bible times, a shepherd's work was considered to be the lowest work. If a family needed a shepherd, the youngest got the job. That's why David was the shepherd in his family. It was not a well-liked job because it was so labor-intensive. Shepherds had to live with the sheep 24-7. They slept out there with them. And the season, the weather, the terrain, the danger, it didn't matter. They had to care for the sheep nonstop. So if all of this is true, why would Yahweh, the only God, the one true God, the holy God, choose to be our shepherd? Now, I'm going to open a can of worms I probably can't put back. It's not controversial, but I hang in there, but here we go. Why did Yahweh create us in the first place? Let's deal with incorrect answers first. (laughs) Here's the one that is usually said, well, he created us to enjoy our fellowship. Eh god is self-sufficient he doesn't need any human he doesn't need anything as divine say it if you want a theological term all right well answer number two well he and I, these are what i read i mean i didn't come up with these he randomly created us almost as an afterthought but that would mean god has a weakness or a flaw god didn't create us because he was bored or just by accident Colossians 1:16 says God created all things for him and by him. We were created as an intentional act. Now someone's getting, will get warmer and they'll say, well, we're to display his glory. Well, not a bad answer. He communicates his glory through us, through his creation, through his redemptive work, but God is self-contained and self-satisfied. He didn't need to create us to show his glory. This is an important sentence. His essential glory can't be improved or diminished by anything, let alone his creation. His essential glory can't be improved or diminished by anything. So that leaves, as far as I know, only one plausible answer. We're an overflow or a manifestation of his love and benevolence. He created you in His image to experience His love out of His love. So in His love, He cares for you. He cares for your very soul. It's an expression of His nature. And that takes us to the function of the shepherd. Shepherding was dangerous. Wild animals would attack The sling that David used to kill Goliath was probably used to keep wild animals at bay. And the Bible tells us that David would kill a lion or a bear that took a lamb from the flock. That is a very bad man. So David draws on his experience of protecting the flock and he says, that's what God does when he leads me and it's true of the way Jesus shepherds us. The quality of the life of the sheep depends on the character of the life of the shepherd. A man named Philip Keller wrote that. I wish I'd come up with that. He was a shepherd who wrote a book on this psalm. And he said next to his land was an owner who was just negligent with his sheep. They were dirty and hungry. They fell prey to dogs and cougars. They had no shelter for storms, so he said they were weak and diseased. And that's because the quality of the life of the sheep depends on the character of the life of the shepherd. And what's true physically of sheep is true spiritually of us. Now, God sends under-shepherds to churches to lead a flock. They have to do the best they can to lead biblically. So in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, God said, surely my flock has become prey, P-R-E-Y, has become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, for the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. In Jeremiah, he was very blunt. He said the shepherds have been stupid and have not sought the Lord, and all their flock is scattered. Now, we do our best, me and Nathan and Kirk, but we're only under shepherds. And I can tell you, we're, we're aware of our weaknesses. We all, with you, want to follow the good shepherd who will never mislead us because the quality of the life of the sheep depends on the character of the life of the shepherd. So Jesus leads us and protects us as the good shepherd. And he went to battle with a group that saw themselves as the so-called shepherds of the people, and they were the Pharisees. So if you have your Bibles open, look at Luke 15 for just a minute. Some of you are turning there, I'll give you a second. Luke 15, verse 1, excuse me, verse 4. Luke 15, verse 4, and he asked the Pharisees a question. He said, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? There's a lot more there than meets the eye. He says, what man among you? He's comparing the Pharisees to shepherds. They viewed shepherds as unclean social outcasts. The truth of the matter is Jesus was insulting the Pharisees. He's trying to wake them up from their legalism. The Pharisees saw themselves as above all the people. They would use rabbinic tradition, not the Old Testament, and wield it as a weapon to tell everyone where they were sinful. All the while, they were engaging in what the Old Testament called sin. So next Jesus said, a shepherd leaves 99 sheep to pursue just one. The Pharisees probably would have considered a lost animal, part of doing business. But to Jesus, just one was worth the pursuit because that sheep was lost. The biblical description of those who do not know Jesus Christ is not unsaved, it's not unchurched, it's lost. We use the word lost regarding keys or a purse, but when a person is lost, it's terrifying. So in Psalm 8, the psalmist asks this question, what is man that God is mindful of him? Who among us is so worthy that Jesus would care about us. But he does care about us because of who he is. So notice the search is intense. Verse 4, he goes after the lost one. He leaves the rest behind. And then the search is persistent. He goes after it until he finds the lost one. He came from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost because he is a good shepherd. Now, the 23rd Psalm, unfortunately, is seen by the world, by Blost, as sentimental and hazy and even self-affirmative. Put this together with amazing grace, and man, you got yourself a funeral. (laughs) And I know I've done it before. But folks, this Psalm teaches down-to-earth truth. Remember, David wrote this. Men tried to kill him. He was hunted like an animal. He had to hide in rocks and caves. His own son turned on him and led a rebellion against him. He led a nation in a divided kingdom, but through it all, he could say, the Lord is my shepherd. And here's what that means for us. When life is hard, trust that you have a good shepherd. When you have slanderous enemies, and that's so painful, when you're discouraged when your family rejects you when grief barges in when problems come at you like a swarm of locusts turn your heart to jesus trusting that he is a good shepherd and he is going to lead you all the way home we are sheep he is a shepherd number three we will not want That's the end of verse 1 in Psalm 23, but other versions translate that as, there is nothing I lack. So what's he referring to here, material provision or spiritual provision? I read a study, and you may have seen it. It was finished last year by Lifeway Research, and it's one of those, wait, what surveys? I mean, it said 76% of churchgoers believe that God wants them to prosper financially, compared to 69% six years ago. 52% said their church teaches that, up from 38% six years ago. Please tell me that's not true. And 45% of them said they have to do something from God to receive material blessings from God. Okay. Let's look at a few applications of that phrase, I shall not want. Number one, the Bible says we shall be content with food and clothing anything beyond that is a gracious gift of the good shepherd number two i shall not want is not a lost prevention promise nor is it a promise that we'll have what our heart desires number three when it comes to material needs your good shepherd said this do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink nor for your body as to what you'll put on Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? I often have to refresh myself in those words. Number four, wants have a way of being redefined as needs. (laughs) Some of you are laughing. Charles Spurgeon said, The wicked always want, but the righteous never. A sinner's heart is far from satisfaction, but a gracious spirit dwells in the palace of content. That'll end the laughter. (laughs) Come on, y'all, lighten up. I'm telling you to lighten up, now I'm getting ready to get really heavy. There was a Puritan named Thomas Boston, and he preached a sermon, and I wasn't around to hear it, But I read it from time to time, and it's remarkably accurate and powerfully convicting, and it's got the coolest or the most amazing title ever. The sermon is called The Hellish Sin of Discontent. The Hellish Sin of Discontent. He said, discontent is composed of the blackest ingredients, the scum of a corrupt heart boiling up and mixed to make up the hellish composition. He said, discontent, excuse me, discontent takes away the relish of spiritual things. It makes them dull and tasteless, <clears throat> and therefore we serve Jesus drooping and heartless. Discontent is a sin because discontent is the opposite of everything a Christian believes. Listen, I don't deserve any material blessing. I don't deserve any spiritual blessing. Why did he redeem my life from the pit? Why did I get a great wife? Why did he send me to a gracious, Jesus-loving church? I, didn't, don't, I deserve none of that every christian knows we deserve hell instead he's given us spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in christ everything necessary for life and godliness and we were given jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross so boston said discontent is a hellish sin because it is a manifestation of pride that says i know what i should have better than god knows So I shall not want could refer to material provision, but I think the emphasis here is spiritual Now, I don't know who said the following but I with I resonate with it deeply The statement is this the older I get the less concern I have for what I have or have not done And the more concern I have for what I have or have not become The older I get, the less concern I have for what I have or have not done, and the more concern I have for what I have or have not become. Now that statement can lead to error because a Christian has to serve. We can gorge ourselves with truth and stuff it with more truth and learn and learn and learn, and Paul says knowledge just makes one arrogant. If we never discharge truth in service for the kingdom, We become like a chubby, humpty-dumpty who falls off the wall. It's hard to be put back together again. Pride goes before a fall. Remember, the who we are, though, determines what we do. So we need to be attentive to who we are becoming, and that has to do with our very soul. Our soul is who we are. It's the foundation of what we do. So what we need for our soul is faith, and holiness, and wisdom, and the Good Shepherd leads us into way to bring these things into our lives we just need to follow him so number one we i'm a sheep number two he is a shepherd number three we shall not want number four is a question is he your shepherd david called him my shepherd i intentionally worded the second point of this he is a shepherd because it's easy to see say jesus is a shepherd or jesus is the good shepherd but can you say this morning Jesus is your Shepherd now how can you know sheep follow the Shepherd he overrules their will he directs their affairs and they follow him wherever he goes Keller and by the way this man's name is Philip Keller not Tim Keller don't get that confused Keller said when he bought his first 30 ewes, his neighbor came over. He admired their quality, and then, I think it was a gift, he handed him a large, sharp knife, and he said, Well, they're yours, and now you know what to do. Each shepherd would cut a distinctive mark into the ears of his sheep. That made it easy to determine who owned the sheep. Painful to the sheep? You bet. But each sheep then bore an indelible mark of ownership. Now, there's a biblical parallel to that. It's in Exodus chapter 21. And it says there that when a Hebrew slave served a man for six years, he could go free on the seventh. But Exodus 21.5 says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. In other words, this man chooses to remain a slave. Well, wait, wait a minute. Why would he remain a slave? Here's what he's saying. Life under the master I have now is far preferable than life apart from this master. Why would I want to leave this master? Other masters are taskmasters. This master is a kind of master. So having made that decision, Exodus 21, 6 says, Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And the master shall pierce his ear with an awl, A-W-L, and he shall serve him permanently so if jesus is our shepherd then we permanently surrender to his ownership and jesus wasn't ambiguous about this he said it just very simply my sheep follow me now when it comes to salvation the bible is absent verbiage such as accepting jesus or praying the sinner's prayer or even a personal relationship with jesus What we do see are phrases like denying self, taking up a cross, following Him, faith, repentance, and grace. And this is all because by nature we are all enemies of God because of sin and God's righteous anger is directed toward us. But the death and resurrection of Jesus overcomes sin and averts God's rightful wrath for our sin. He is your good shepherd when you repent of sin, believe he died on the cross, and that he rose again for you. And then when we're saved, we're a new creation. But like sheep we go astray, so today we observe the Lord's Supper. The main reason we do this is to remember what Jesus has done for us. The bread represents Jesus' body, the juice, his blood. And I begin to think about this the way I've led this over the years. There's something I don't think I've ever explained. As we observe this, notice that we take the bread first and then the juice. You'll see in these little containers we'll pass out, that nasty little wafers on the top, that represents bread. It tastes like styrofoam, right? It still represents his body. And then the juice is next now why why is that well jesus gave us his body hang in there with me on this his body does not represent his death it represents his sinless life jesus sinless life accomplishes for us what we could not do he never sinned not once in word thought and deed so if our faith is in him this is so beautiful he He counts his perfect obedience as if it was yours, and he bore God's wrath for your sins as if they were his. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So his body represents his sinless life. Then Jesus' body was given for us, and his blood was poured out for us. His blood represents his death. Now, why so? Well, blood in the body means life. Blood out of the body means death. So He shed His blood. He died as a substitute for us. As God's wrath for sin killed Him, not us. Therefore, our sins are forgiven. We're free. We're free from sin. We're free from guilt and shame. And we're even free from the fear of death. So as sheep who go astray, each one of us, We need this ordinance to remind us to look back at the cross, to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done, and then to know that we're secure in his grace because we believe in his death and resurrection. You must be a believer to take this. Now, the Bible also says to examine yourself before you take it. In fact, it even says, if you take it in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And Paul said that is drinking judgment on ourselves, and that can result in sickness and death. That's 1 Corinthians 11. When I was on the other side of the pulpit for years, I would sometimes skip this ordinance because I would be convicted about some things in my life that weren't right. So I thought, well, I'm certainly unworthy, and I don't want to be guilty of uh, the body and blood of the Lord, so I better pass on this. But I know now that that was a misunderstanding. And I want to clear this up this morning. First of all, none of us are worthy We can only partake by God's grace But as you examine yourself, there are really three questions to ask Number one do I believe in his sinless life atoning death and victorious resurrection? Now it's not well did I pray a prayer in the past. It's do I believe right now? And if you would say you know, I really can't say that I believe Uh, just not sure then please pass on this and please know that we would love to talk to you in the future and answer questions that you might have we're sincerely glad that you're here now here's the second question am i repenting of sin present tense not did i repent in the past is repentance occurring excuse me a current ongoing part of my life Now, I didn't say your life is perfect, but are you consistently repenting of sin? And then a third question, and here's the big one. Is there any sin in your life that you're aware of, but you're not willing to repent of it? Is there any sin in your life you're aware of, but you're not willing to repent of it? It may be a long-standing entrenched sin, and you know what it is. Other people have even talked to you about it. It could be something recent, but you've got your arms folded and said, I'm not going to repent. Now, if you refuse to repent of a known sin, that's eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. The Corinthians here were eating all the food and actually getting drunk before the poorer people arrived at church, and they wouldn't change that. Paul blasted them in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a sin they would not repent of. So these are the questions to ask yourself. Do you believe right now And I didn't say, is your faith perfect? Just, do you believe? Are you repenting of sin? And is there any known sin you refuse to repent from? So if the answer is yes, yes, and no, then do this with a wonderfully clear conscience and with great gladness, knowing that the grace of God has come into your life, you're washed clean from your sins, and you are secure in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're secure eternally. Now, I'm going to ask the men who will serve to come, and as they come, I want to tell you that these men are deacons in our church. Deacons are servants. They serve the church. Come on, guys. (laughs) And I've asked them to serve in the Sunday morning nursery, and most of them do. They handle our benevolence well. They're working on beginning to reach out to some of our seniors on a monthly basis to check on their well-being, so I'm grateful for them. And as they come, there's so many things that we could say about the Lord's Supper. It proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. It engenders gratitude for all that he's done. We're thankful for this ordinance that points us back to the Lord Jesus.